And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Weird, Wild, and Wacky definitely describes this week's episode. We're talking about the curious case of Count Karl von Kassel. This is the German immigrant, Key West, the 1920s, who falls in love with a young Cuban woman. She dies from tuberculosis, and he ends up living with the corpse for seven years. That is, in a nutshell, the crazy episode, the wild ride we're about to go on. We're going to get right into this. There's just too much story to leave behind in an intro. So I'm sitting here with Ben Harrison, who wrote a book, Undying Love, where he chronicles Count Karl von Kassel. Uh, so Ben, first of all, this is an incredible book. Um, how did you write this? Where did you come up with this idea? Where did this all come from? And this is a crazy story. It, it, there's so many aspects to it. Um, so many sort of turns and twists. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I read a, a, a brief chapter in a in a, a book called A Key West Companion, which was is still published. It's a tourist guidebook, and so I wrote a song about the the uh, story. I I'm, was a professional musician back then, and. Uh, playing nightly on Duval Street, and it became the most uh, requested uh, song that uh, I played. And uh, so then a friend of mine, quote, unquote, talked me into writing a musical about it. Well, so you wrote so, so you wrote a song, you wrote a musical, you wrote a book, and you edited that book four times. Would you say that you are as obsessed with this story as Von Kossel was obsessed with Elena? No, <laughs> thankfully. Well, should I say that? <laughs> of course you wouldn't. <laughs> uh, it, um, you know, it's, it's just got a dark humor to it. And um, it's, uh, I think the thing that surprised me the most was just how much people um were interested in the story. And, and I mean, I had a, a, a girl come down from Miami yesterday to talk to me about it. It's um, sort of taken on its own life. Well, that is a, a great figure speech given the, the subject matter. So let's let's talk about, let's, let's, let's get into the story here. We've teased it enough. This is a crazy story. We got a lot to get into. Um, and again, we're talking about, we're talking with Ben Harrison. The book is Undying Love. The story of Count of Carl von Kassel, and so so that you kind of you 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 wrote the book, but you used you used von Kassel's own memoirs to, to kind of narrate it. Uh, how did you get the memoirs, and which memoirs did you use? Uh, they were published uh, in a in a pulp uh, rag magazine uh, called Fantastic Adventures okay. in nineteen forty seven. 
and then they were republished by uh, Rod Bethel, who was the son of the cemetery sexton at the time Mm. that all this took place. And then it was republished uh, again. But um, he, he wrote these memoirs. They really give you a window into his mind. And, and, and you get some sort of understanding where he was coming from on this, although they're not to be trusted whatsoever. Because <laughs> um, he, he makes up stuff all the time. Well, now, now who was this guy? Who was Carl von Kossel? Who's actually, his real name's Carl Tanzler, correct? It was, his real name was George Carl Tanzler. Okay. And he, he upgraded himself to Count Carl von Kossel when he, when he landed in Key West, it, it, which was not uncommon of, of Europeans coming over to the United States at the time. The, the economy after World War II was so bad in Europe that... World War I, uh, I believe, right? Well, this was... Would have, uh, yeah, World War I, it was just... The plan was to join his sister here in, in Key West. And um, then he he didn't like Zephyr Hills, Florida, which is where his sister lived. And so that's why he moved back to Key West, where he was the radiologist for the at the Marine Hospital. Well, now let's let's pause and, there for a second. I want to go. I want to hit the history of of Carl first because I think it's really important to set the stage for the story because I think his history okay. his history really paves the path for his time in Key West. Okay, um, so now he's he's married in Germany. He's got two kids in Germany, right? Yes. And so, so and oh, the the plan was for him to immigrate to Florida, mm-hmm. and then once he was established, they would follow him. Okay. And uh, they did. Uh, <laughs> right. They lived in in Zephyr Hills, Florida, but um, they apparently didn't get along. Von Kossel's a strange character. I mean, he was he was um, a little loose upstairs. Well, and even before he gets married. You know, let's talk about the supernatural elements of of his, at least at the very least, his belief system, because this is kind of what fascinated me. Now, this is, you know, this is one of the things that people don't talk about. They kind of, you know, focus on on the meat of the story. But but the history here, like this tells a lot about him. Now, I'm talking about the apparitions that he saw um, that that told him about his future wife. Tell that story. And, and there's a lot to tell. There. There's a couple of instances. Well, the thing is, these were made up later on. Uh, he he fabricated so much mm. uh, of the memoirs. He, um, I don't think he had these apparitions. Uh, They're in your book until he <laughs> until he laid eyes on Elena. Okay. <laughs> then, then he Got decided it. he had had these apparitions. Got it. Well, it's... Uh, because he didn't he didn't grow up in a castle and. Mm-hmm. and Dresden, Germany. Right, right, right. Um, so uh, hmm. a lot of these are delusional writings. Oh, got it. Okay. I mean, well, let's just brief. The, the story is briefly that he he at least tells the story that he saw an apparition of a woman who said that he was going to be his wife, and that this apparition followed him around, and he saw it many times throughout his younger years. Um, so that when he finally lays eyes on Elena. 
it all comes together. And he spent, I mean, and, yes. and, and he spent time in Havana as well. So there's a lot of these weird coincidences. But I want to hit them because they all kind of come together. Because it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, like, oh, he was loose upstairs, he was crazy. And, like, that's just very dismissive of him. What I want to understand is, because I think the character of Count Karl von Kassel is extremely interesting. So I want to give him, paint him with all the nuances that are appropriate so that people really appreciate the type of person that he was. Um, so, so if you can just tell a little bit about the apparition history and then how he traveled into Key West. Well, he, he, um, I, I think he was probably in the, in the German Navy during World War One, And I think that's where he learned radiology. I think that's how he was able to get a job at the, at the Marine Hospital here taking x-rays. Because um, he claimed several degrees, and, correct? I mean, he claimed several degrees in science in Germany. And I... I think it's highly doubtful any of those are true. Okay. Um, because, I mean, the time sequence, uh, mm -hmm. he claims he was in Australia the same year that he took these nine difficult examinations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, 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 uh, uh, he makes up so much of this that it's, it's really hard to, 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 tell fact from fiction sure. other than the fact that I mean he took this dead girl home from the grave right. and kept her for seven years. Right, right. Well, I mean, so so when he I mean, so he spends time in Australia, he sees ap these apparitions. Um, he even at one point sees a statue in Germany that looks like the apparition. Um, so in his mind, he's kind of being led on this course from Germany and the, and, you know, he even says at one point that he's like Odysseus on the Odyssey. And so he's kind right. of crafting the story of, you know, he's in Germany, he sees these apparitions, there's poltergeist activity, it's interacting with him. Um, they show him a picture of his future wife. He sees this statue in Georgia that looks like the apparition uh, of his future wife. Uh, and then he ends up in Havana, Cuba. Um, and then he ends up in Key West, and he claimed lots of medical degrees, um, a lot of expertise. He claimed to be a doctor, and at the very least, you know, whether or not he had these degrees, we can say that he had an extreme interest in science, and to some sense, um, you know, a, a proficiency in science. Because, as we're going to see later on, he does use a lot of applied knowledge um, to to do some things. You know, it's they're they're yeah, he's a little more mad sciencey, mad scientisty than he is, you know. Uh, than he is like actual doctor, but you know he, there's there's something there. He's not he's he's a smart guy in in some respects. We can agree on that, right? Well, he he was a great talker. Okay. Now I I don't think any of his inventions worked. Well, he had an airplane that never got off the ground. <laughs> that was like number right. one. <laughs> and and but he was very convincing. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he had a quite a presence about himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one of the things I interviewed quite a few people who knew him okay. and Elena okay. um, Interesting. back in the seventies. And one of the things that really stood out was, um, his aristocratic demeanor, his, um, uh, bearing the fact that he walked with a cane or a, a, an umbrella and, and wore a fedora and 
and uh, dressed smartly, uh, at least at the beginning. Now, as he became more and more unraveled, he um, he was still pretty dapper. I mean, at the, at the hearing, he was wearing a tuxedo jacket and uh, and um, but he also had tennis shoes with no socks. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's kind of funny because you know whatever people's ultimate decision on von Kassel is, he. In the point I'm trying to make here is that he lived his reality. You know, he he whether he fabricated it or not. You know, he believed himself to be aristocratic nobleman from Europe, and that's how he dressed. You know, he believed himself to be a scientist, and that's how he acted. You know, so he was yes. he was very good at weaving this you know this life around him that people ended up buying into. I mean, he's definitely more of a caricature uh, of someone from Europe than he was of like a real character. You know, I mean, he's kind of a cartoon in some ways. Um, but but he did build a grand organ, right? I mean, that was like one of his things that he carried around with him. Um, he, he obviously had an organ of some sort. Um, now, the one in the, the picture in the book, um, I don't think that ever worked. Um, it was bought and using the vernacular of, of the 1930s from a Negro church. Mm, okay. Um, so he didn't build that it. he was going to repair. Got it. But I don't think that one ever played. But apparently he did have some sort of organ that he did play, uh, and and was and was proficient at it. And you do make an interesting point in the book. This kind of is a little non sequitur, but that Key West was called the Island of Bones by the Spanish um, before we called it Key West. Um, and also another thing to, to note here is that Key West at the time we're talking about the 1920s here. Um, it's essentially a small town. I mean, you've got 10,000 to 12,000 people there, right? I mean, it's not, it's not that, right. it's, it's a small enough community where I don't want to say everybody knows everyone, but most people know most people. We can agree on that, right? Well, uh, if, if they didn't know them, they'd seen them. Right, 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 right. And, uh, and it was all, it was an interesting period because the 1930s, uh, was the year of the Great Depression, um, and uh, um, also in 1935, that's when the uh, railroad was blown away by a hurricane, and so that cut Key West off completely from the mainland uh, until 1937, when the overseas railroad, uh, overseas highway was was built, and uh, but. Key West was pretty unique, and, and the people that I interviewed, they all seemed to have a, a little bit of a twinkle in their eye about that that decade because um, there was plenty of food. Uh, I mean, seafood was abundant. People had gardens. The uh, This was also prohibition, but rum was flowing in from Cuba, uh, which was documented in Hemingway's To Have and Have Not. Um, and uh, there was plenty of housing because the tobacco industry had moved to Tampa, so the cigar makers' homes were available, and no one was going to freeze in Key West. So there really wasn't much to do other than socialize and uh, um, listen to Radio Havana. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Well, now that's a, a great segue into the 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 romantic lead, I should say. Now that's not fair because I don't know that this is a romance. But let's say that the the um, the leading lady. Uh, let's, let's bring her into this. So this, we're talking about Elena Hoyos, right? So tell me a little bit about uh-huh. her and her background. Well, she was married rather young at about eighteen, and. Uh, she, I mean, her life seemed very promising at the time. Uh, when she, and and this is unfortunate too. Key West tuberculosis was called consumption back in that period because there was just no cure for it, and uh, so it it was really unfortunate that she contracted the disease because, for one, it caused her husband to leave her because I think he was afraid of becoming infected by it. And, um, and her family at first thought that, that, uh, her malaise was the result of this heartbreak, but, um, it obviously turned out to be uh, more lethal than well, that. She also had a miscarriage like right around that same time, right? So this, that could have all yes, been she kind did. of, you know, you didn't know exactly what was going on with her. As it, it's hard to say that she had a lot of promise. I mean, because she was married in, um, you know, 1926, she was 18. And then, you know, a couple of big, like three big things happened to her. And then, you know, it's kind of a steep decline. It's really sad. It is. It's very sad. And uh, a, a lot of the speculation is why did she even entertain uh Count von Kossel, Dr. von Kossel. But he was the only one who was offering the miracle cure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was the only one who was saying, I, I, I can let you live. Right. Or at least the hope of it, especially with a disease that had such a high mortality rate. Um, right. So now, so, so she... It was the number one cause of death in Key West at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. That's in... Premature wow. death. Um, so, so she, so she, well, now at the time, now the point I'm talking about, she's, she's not hundred percent sure she has TB. Um, so she goes and gets an x-ray at the same hospital Von Kossel is working at. And Von Kossel is an x-ray working as an x-ray technician in this hospital. And so, so yes. she comes in and it's, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know from, from maybe you wrote it this way. I, I think it appears in his memoirs this way. You know, hindsight's always very different than at the time, but the way it is described, it's like every, you know, goofy romantic comedy where it's like the angels were singing like, oh, you know, like she becomes extremely smitten with Elena like the second he sees her, you know. And from the moment he sees her, he is in perpetual motion, uh, trying to cure her, trying to take care of her, burial and then ultimately uh, her resurrection or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I, he, he simply could not let go. No, no, so, well, well, this meeting is very important because it sets a couple things in motion. It, it does one of two things. Either um, it confirms all of the supernatural history we talked about before because Elaine is the spitting image of the apparition and the statue that he saw in his mind. So it either it either confirms all yeah. of his beliefs or, as you suggest, it was either the genesis for his own made-up backstory at this moment. Um, also, 
you know, he so he he you know he finds these lesions on her, and he ends up at her house, I believe, for dinner that night because he wants to help her. Um, is that that's correct, right? Well, he he went to arrange the X-rays, and um, the uh, the times were poor. Very few people had telephones in Key West, and uh, they had um, the family had taken her to to see uh, the doctor there at uh, um, Doctor Lombard at the Marine Hospital, and he's the one who said she needed to have x-rays to find out if she was in fact infected and so he went to her family home to make arrangements for that and and in fact not that many people had electricity Hmm. at that point in time because it was it was uh it was a luxury and her family was very poor they were in large part to the fact that the the uh, tobacco industry had moved to Tampa. Right. Well, so so he ends up at her house. So I want to finish. I want to put a button on what I was going to say. So so he ends up back at her house and he sees a picture of Saint Cecilia, and so he starts making you know either creating these connections or or actually putting them together because he spent time in Havana, Cuba. Elena is Cuban. Um, he sees Saint Cecilia. Um, he knew St. Cecilia, the picture from when he was in Cuba. So he starts making all these connections that there's some kind of divine intervention of sorts. You know, fate is working its magic to bring these two together. We can, you know, Destiny. exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so that's what's going on in his mind at this time. So I just want to make it clear where his, where his mindset is um, as he is doing all these things. So... He knows, oh. and one of the big conflicts is the is the is the uh, the German sort of Wagner Bach musical orientation versus the <clears throat> excuse me the Latin American uh, music, and and uh, von Kassel wanted things very structured, very calm. I got you, and uh, the Latin. Culture was just more chaotic. Right, right, right. Very different. I mean, that's that's a very good way to put it. Very interesting. Um, two very different dynamics. And also, you know, in 1926, um, Elena's 18 and he's 49. So, need you know, need to say there's a 30 year, 30 plus year age gap between them. Uh, so, which which plays a part in all this. So, anyway, so so von Kossel starts taking care of her. So he goes out of his way, obviously above and beyond, because he knows this is a death sentence. So he goes above and beyond trying to save her. Now, this is kind of where um, you know we talked about before, where his degrees and stuff kind of come into play, because he's kind of like a mad scientist here. He's obsessed with high voltage electricity. And he almost becomes, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, this is just what I gathered from the book, he becomes almost like a Frankensteinian, you know, uh, Herbert Westy kind of, uh, well, like mad scientist where he starts doing these, you know, experiments with, you know, little to no knowledge base except, you know, these theories that are running around in his head. You're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, he he um, was obsessed with electricity and... Uh, and he felt that uh, his high voltage machine would 
somehow cure the lesions uh, from the tuberculosis that she had contracted. And uh, again, he was great at, at, at talk, but the effectiveness of this is... It was obviously <laughs> dubious, at least. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> well, there's a part you have in your book where, you know, I, I, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, she survived the treatment? Like, you, you know, I, I think you wrote somewhere that, that she, you know, was in pain through a lot of these things. He had to convince the family to allow him to keep going on, um, you know, which they did because, as you mentioned, it was hope that was what he was selling. That's right. And it, it's, it's sort of... Um, the same as, as somebody who goes to a foreign country to get a, an exotic cancer mm, treatment. Exactly. Uh, none of the other doctors in town felt that there was any chance of her being cured. So the family was destitute. He wasn't charging them, and he was offering the miracle mm -hmm. cure. Which, you know, in hindsight, obviously it all seems crazy, but in the moment, I, you know, this is very easy to understand anyone. This could have happened to anyone, really. Um, I mean, it, it all makes perfect yes. sense to me. And, and you can understand the, 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 the parents and uh, their acceptance and rejection of him sort of off and on right. during... Right, right, right. The, the period while she was uh, in declining health. Um, so, I mean, it's easy to be, it's easy to understand how this happened. Well, it's kind of messed up in a way because, you know, very early on, uh, from what I gathered, he makes his romantic intentions very clear to her and to the family. And as the family... A, they were Cuban, and they wanted her to marry another Cuban, um, despite how the previous relationship worked out. Um, but B, this man is significantly older, uh, 30 years, um, you know, and that was also kind of troubling. And also, I'm gathering that, you know, that these people kind of were detecting that, that uh, Carl was a little, you know, kooky Carl. He was a little off his rocker a little bit, and I think that they, they kind of detected that. Um, but the power of saving their daughter overshadowed all of that. But I think they were on to him very early on, uh, and which which would explain why he had the off on again off again relationship with them. Well, the wingless airplane uh, and the the photographs of that paint a a pretty good portrait of von Kassel. <laughs> uh, it, I, I mean, he had these huge pontoon wheels. Mm. Yeah, the pictures are amazing. That uh, he <laughs> he claimed that would allow him to land on water or earth. Mm. And uh, but the reality is, without a third one of these large wheels on the on the tail of the airplane, it would have. If he'd landed on water, it would have just turned upside yeah, down. Would have drowned. <laughs> would have just been underwater. And and. I, I, and that is so really elementary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, that was von that's, that's such a that's a very poetic way to describe him. He is like his wingless airplane, which you know, which as you, whether you did this on purpose or not, is is speckled throughout the story. You know, almost as a reminder 
to just where who he is you know like that is a mechanical representation of von kossel you know um because ultimately well we'll, we'll get to we'll get to the to, to the airship in a second but i want to keep that in everyone's mind because that plays a, a very interesting um uh, narrative role in this so so it's very metaphoric. Extremely, it is. yeah, and and it becomes more so as the story goes on. But so now, so obviously the treatments don't work. TB is is a um, it's a terminal illness at the time, and so she's on her deathbed, right? And so a couple of things happen here, which yes. is kind of interesting to the story. Um, so he's you know he's been you know proposing marriage. She's been rejecting him, and she says you know she can't marry him. You know she's gonna die she gives all these kinds of reasons but she asks him to take care of her body which then he takes as a marriage vow for some reason um and she says she can't marry him but she leaves him her body to kind of to take care of while this is happening or at this time there's a song that also plays a very key narrative component in this uh in this story and that is la boda negro you want to explain this yeah it's la boda boda Negra. negra And The Black Wedding, uh, written by uh, Alberto Villalon in the late 1800s, 1890, around in there. And it, that's critical to, the, to the, his mindset because and she had to have introduced him to the song because it's in Spanish. Okay. And uh, so... And it was being played a lot. It was a very popular song. It was her favorite time. song, I believe, right? And it's about this... It, it, yeah, it's about this guy who... It, it's a romantic song about a, a fellow who's so uh, upset over the premature death of his sweetheart that he digs her up from the grave and takes her to his uh, bed filled with flowers and recites his wedding vows with her and then commits suicide. And... She had to have introduced him to this. And this is the song that Von Kossel claimed she sang mm-hmm. to him from exactly. the crypt. And that, that is th- that she was asking him to please take her home, just as the, uh, the distraught lover in, in La Boda Negra had taken his uh, prematurely dead sweetheart home. And so that's that's what planted the Well, seed. yeah, I mean, I think in his memoirs, she sings it to him, she introduces it, and he has meaning, you know, I think he sees the end coming, and it kind of, that that's the seed dropped in his head that, um, given the fertile ground in his brain, is allowed to grow. Uh, so, so this all happens, and then she dies uh, in 1931, and he's distraught, he visits the grave every day, and then he even ends up renting out Elena's room, correct? Yes. And um, in the parents' house, <laughs> I, I find that I find that really yeah. curious that uh, her parents would have done that. But it was probably from financial reasons. I just wouldn't want this creepy dude. I mean, I don't know. It's just got this. This would never happen today because you know it just <laughs> wouldn't happen today. There's too much. You've seen too much in the news about weird stuff. And maybe he started this whole thing. Who knows? But. You know, guy is obsessed with my daughter. I'm not really going to keep him, let him rent out her room after she dies. But he visits the, you know, he visits the grave every day, but then gets kind of, and this is kind of where I think obviously his, you know, mind was going back and forth. But this may have been the moment where it snapped, and sometimes it is with 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 deaths and all this stuff. But 
he becomes obsessed with the condition of her body and the prevalence of groundwater while she's in while she's been buried, correct? Yes. And and this and so this this kind of in it's kind of the genesis for him taking everything a step further. So he builds her a mausoleum and then can you explain like how the coffin that he created for her works? So he he you know, the plan is to to dig her up and put her in a brand new coffin in a mausoleum which should be protected from the elements. Tell that story a little bit. And and he he um was he with the permission of the family and the state right. of Florida correct, he disinterred correct. her. So she took her second visit to the funeral home. And uh she stayed there while he built this elaborate mausoleum. But while she was in the funeral home, he rebedded her body. He did. Which, <laughs> yes. He did. Right. <laughs> which is pretty bizarre. And the, the, the explanation that he gives is um, pretty horrific. But uh, he bought... Uh, a double coffin type thing, uh, an inner and an outer coffin. And that's how he was able to take her away from the the, uh, cemetery uh, because he left the outer coffin in the mausoleum and took the inner coffin uh, to his airship. So um, that's, that's how he was able to achieve that. And one of the one of the interesting things, while he's, you know, he claims Elena was talking to him from the grave, and he and he tells Elena, he says, "Listen, people are accustomed to see seeing bodies being brought into the cemetery, but they're not accustomed to people taking bodies out of the cemetery." So, right. Well, and, and so a couple of weird things here. So number one, he builds a mausoleum, and he puts and he signs it. Um, uh, C.T. D. Castle, which you make the argument may have been Countess Damsel von Castle, um, because the the initials don't make any sense, really. No, they don't, and and of course he did not include her married name. Of course not. Which was Mesa, and uh, it was because he paid for everything. Um, the family let him do that. And, and and also, so this incubation tank. So this this well, I'm God ahead of myself there for a second. So he builds this double coffin, but it's in actuality kind of like an incubation uh, incubation tank. So this this is where that mad scientist thing continues on because he fills it with kind of like an embalming fluid. So she's like suspended in a preserving liquid while she's in this, right? Yes. So this is all, you know, it, it it's really. As we move on, we're going to see that that the mad scientist stuff didn't end, and instead of you know previously it was trying to you know to save her life. Uh, from here on out, he continues these types of experiments, as we'll see, and is really trying to restore life. And that was uh, the the sentiment, um, the overwhelming sentiment of people who. I mean, this was a huge story in all the newspapers all over the country and, mm-hmm. and in Europe. It, it caught everyone's attention, and, and everyone was fascinated by it. And, and the overwhelming sentiment was one of, of compassion, uh, that 
here World War II is about to break out, and we're about to see another bloodbath like World War One. And here is one man trying to bring another person back to life. Right, right. Oh, that and, context is very interesting. And, that uh, you know, even if the odds are a million to one, at least he was trying to do something positive. Right. Well, and he told and said in his memoirs that death is not the end of life and that resurrection from the grave is a possibility. So he believed this, and this is why he was doing all this stuff. Um, so he, you know... He he smells her odor. He he's hears her as you mentioned before. He hears her talking to him. She starts singing La Boda Negra, and he gets the idea. I got to bring this coffin to my house. How am I going to do it? Um, and he even sets up a rehearsal um, to get this thing home. So now describe. Now you open your book with this description, which felt very bold. I got to tell you because it's um, pretty graphic story. But so now tell. This is you know this is kind of everything that the story is built around. Tell me about the stealing of the of the coffin from the grave. Well, it was it was um, a dark and stormy night. It was a dark. <laughs> Uh, but uh, his description is is uh, is really pretty pretty marvelous. Uh, you know, he claimed that the other people in the in the cemetery were ghost-like apparitions helping him take this body. It was like a uh, it was wasn't like a funeral. It was like a congratulatory procession. Like a wedding march. Yes. And so it, uh, um, in fact, that's probably his best writing right there, was describing this this uh, taking of the coffin, which didn't work out terribly well. But he did end up getting her to the wingless airplane. Well, yeah, well, d well, don't cut out the whole Which journey is where he there. Helped her. Yeah, I mean, because the journey is pretty incredible. So he, he, this thing's, you know, a couple hundred pounds, right? I, I mean, it's it's a solid metal. Uh, the, the exact weight is not described, but this is a very bulky, heavy piece of equipment, really. Um, it's not just a storage container. So he has a wagon, and he has to get this thing over the fence. Uh, but things don't go too well for him because uh, it's pretty heavy. And. I, I assume, and I, I did have to make some assumptions in the book, um, just based on his personality, that uh, he would have been dressed to the nines. Sure, sure. Um, right, right. When right. he when he made this great escape, and uh, that when he tried to when he was putting this this coffin over the fence, uh, it starts leaking on him. Right. And so here he gets it to this sort of halfway house he had rented that nobody had any idea what he was going to use it for. But then he was, it, it was really a, a, a convoluted end to this great escape because here he is with this, this soiled suit that he had. And uh, so... He had to, there was a, apparently a bottle of whiskey in the, the um, no running water. Let's not forget that's so he didn't couldn't clean no, himself no out. No running water. No running water. So he had to 
wash himself in, in liquor. With grave goons and, uh, all over him. <laughs> and then, then walk the streets of Key West and, and try to, um, and this is, you know, the very middle of the night, and then go back to Elena's parents' house where mm-hmm. he had rented the room. Right. So it, it was, I'm sure, a very troubling evening for him, but he was undaunted. I mean, and not to mention the Herculean effort it would take to take, you know, a hundreds-pound coffin and get it over a fence. I mean, he he succeeded despite all efforts to stop him, um, which almost lends credence because he heard Elena talking to him the whole time. She gave him directions. She helped plan the thing. At least he says that in his memoirs, which is kind of an, you know, it's interesting that he succeeded despite the fact that he shouldn't have. Um and yeah, the, so so he gets this this body home. He ends up putting it into the airship, which again goes back to the metaphor I talked about earlier, where he keeps her kind of close to him through this airship that, as you so aptly described, is um, you know a mechanical metaphor for von Kossel himself, uh, which you know he kept. And so he keeps her there. Here, you know, he, at this moment right now, I'm going to pause for a second. I got to tell you, one of the most amazing parts of this story. Is not that that you know his love for her, not that he brings her home, not that you know, all the stuff that goes on. I am shocked, given as intimate as he was with the body, how he did not either contract TB or or get some kind of sickness, bacterial infection. I don't understand it because he gets her home, uh, and I believe he kisses the body, and he's you know at least twice in the story he breathes into the lungs of this corpse. Whatever is the air has to come back out. That's how lungs work, right? Because um, the air pressure can't keep it in. There's tuberculosis in her lungs. You know, I imagine, you know, at some point even the disease dies, but I don't understand how he, nothing happened to him. I don't either. And fate <laughs> is the hunter, sort I of. So. I mean, just that, incredible. Uh, that some people contracted it and other people didn't. Um, I mean, the entire Oyo's family died of tuberculosis. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And uh, he was spared. Um, and uh, I'm sure that he had come in contact with a lot of tubercular patients. Right, right, right. As the uh, radiologist, and that he did not contract it is... is um, Something. Just one of those things. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, honestly, like of all the things, it blows my mind that he did not have some kind of, that nothing happened to him. Anyway, so now again, to give you a little bit of, you know, into the mindset of of Carl here, he believed in the uh, Brahmin, this is, you know, the, the, the Hindi, the, the high caste of the Hindi belief system, that the recipe for for an uncurable disease was you die, remain in the grave for a year. And afterwards, you're cured, but if you die a second time, you're gone forever. And this is very much like the concept of the TV show Pushing Daisies. Um, what's kind of funny is is I don't know how, like, cultures come up with something like that. Like, did that ever really happen? Did they ever put someone in the grave and then they came back? I don't really understand that. But nonetheless, he kind of believed this. Um, and through all of his work on her, he kind of turned her into a mummy, correct? I mean, kind of like That's a... That's exactly what he did. Wow. I mean, it's and, crazy. Uh... She uh, was obviously in, in terrible condition, but he was making a death mask for her. And in doing so, he put uh, 
this plaster and wax and gauze and, mm-hmm. and uh, things over her face. So he could make this death mask, and he couldn't get them off afterwards. Oh, and that's what gave him this grand idea to mummify her. Got it. Okay. And so he he did the same thing to her entire body. And um, as, as the photographs show in her second viewing and her third trip to the funeral home, she is an effigy. She's a recreation of what von Kossel imagined her to be. Well, and, and a couple of weird things happen. Now, he has her for seven years. Now, in that, we're, I don't mean to gloss over a lot of that stuff, but, but he, you know, he, uh, he ends up losing his job at the hospital because of the economy, and I remember this is during the Great Depression. So he loses his job, and he's been storing the airship at the hospital uh, so he has to move the airship. And also, he's got a real family with two daughters. One of them dies during this whole, or, you know, during this time period. Ignores it completely. And he is so obsessed <laughs> with Elena that he pays no attention to his wife's needs or, or the grief that she's going through or the grief that he should have been going through right. over the loss of a daughter. Uh, he had just gone that far out on a limb. Yeah, he was he was out there. Now, this is an interesting point in the story because there's a lot of there's also this plasma pump that he creates. I kind of got confused in the story because in my mind, a mummy is more it's it's like a dried out human being, right? Like it's almost like the freeze dried version. But in the story, mm-hmm. he's got lots of like he creates a plasma pump and he's got her suspended in a liquid. That's all, you know, and he, he's got all these like strange chemical concoctions that he's infusing into her body. Uh, so I kind of got lost as to where he went from the liquid route into the freeze dried route. Um, so I kind of, I kind of, but I guess over the course of seven years, you know, lots of stuff can happen. Well, I, 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 I think at the beginning, when he finally moved from behind the Marine Hospital to Rest Beach, and those were the happiest years of their post-mortem life together. Uh, for Von Kossel. He felt, yeah, for Von Kossel, <laughs> that these, this incubation tank would give her the, restore her body to, mm-hmm. to somewhat, you know, before death proportions. Right. And uh, I think he genuinely was trying to uh, bring her back to life. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. And so I think then once he moved out to, to Flagler, he didn't have electricity. And so I believe that's where the, the sort of dried out version of her came from. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So there were there was a definite delineation because, you know, seven years is a long time. Um so what's actually kind of funny here is it's almost like Von Kossel, you know, the five stages of grief, it's like he never got out of the denial phase. Like he was just stuck in the denial phase that like not only was she not dead and he kind of quasi accepted it with the caveat that she could come back. You know what I mean? Like the only way he accepted her death was that it wasn't No, permanent. he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he, he simply did not and could not. And he was in perpetual motion. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. From the very moment he met her until he died. 
Um, a complete and utter obsession. Uh, now, now here's what's kind of now, now here. Let's get to a couple other interesting things here. So I, you know, a lot of the stuff in the memoirs is you know, like, as we've mentioned before, may not be true. But on uh, July 29th of 1936, von Kossel claims that Elena actually woke up and spoke to him, and moved around five times, like zombie style. Um, I can't imagine that this happened, but that's a pretty incredible claim. It is, but see, that validates what he was trying to do. You mean that he succeeded and in bringing her back? Yes. <laughs> uh, that validated his efforts right. and gave him cover Got it. for keeping her for as long as he had. So um, that really fits the pattern. What else? Is, what also is kind of weird here is that you know at this time, in, and this kind of you know builds on the whole you know almost like a premonition that he had some kind of psychic connection, but that she, you know, from beyond the grave is telling him to hide her body. Something bad's going to happen, right? Which is it's very strange that he says this later on in his memoirs. He didn't know. He ignores it. Um, and then trouble comes a knocking. So let's talk about how he gets found out. Well, the her sister, who was the the last of the of the family members alive, had heard rumors. And Key West is a small town, and everybody knows everything. Eventually, uh, they're simply art secrets. And so I don't know whether children had seen, you know, looked in the window and seen this effigy or, or body and uh, weekend of or how it came, yeah, or how it came about. But the sister confronted him and said, I want to make sure that my sister is in the, in the, the crypt where she be- belongs. And... She said if she doesn't, she thinks she'll go crazy. And he says, well, I don't want you to go crazy, so come to my house and I'll, I'll show you where Elena is. And he was um, taken aback by the fact that she thought that was really strange, that he had kept her and was she was sleeping in her old bed there and... Uh, uh, she gave him the ultimatum. Either you take her body back or I'm going to contact the authorities. And he, of course, didn't. And she did contact the authorities who arrested him. And then all of a sudden, he goes from recluse to this national media star. Uh, women are coming down from... Tampa to interview him, uh, reporters, uh, Janine Bellamy, one of the first female reporters for the, any major newspaper uh, from Miami Herald was down, and these news outlets, uh, the Associated Press were, he, and he just went from a recluse to a, a star, and he relished that. Hmm. Um, he he did pretty well with it. 
<laughs> and uh, which is interesting in itself because he enjoyed the limelight um, much more than I think he thought he would. That's very interesting. And uh, yeah, and he couldn't quite understand why all the flashbulbs were going off. And but then again, he's hearing he wore a tuxedo jacket with a bow tie and and uh, the shiny lapels and shoes with and sneakers with no socks and <laughs> sneakers with no socks <laughs> well, so so he gets arrested and he's basically charged with defiling a grave is basically the charge um, and what's interesting is at the time you made this point before, you know, we're on the brink of World War II, people wanted a little bit of escapism. So there's this whole romantic bend that's on, like, all of the news reporting at the time, which, in truth, wasn't even remotely true. It, it, it was a, a, I don't know, a, a comic relief, if you want to right. call it sure, that. Sure, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That... Uh, the world was blowing up literally um, about that time, and so any diversion, especially that of a, a Count von Kassel and his unearthly love for a, a woman that he keeps for seven years, was just an appealing story. But he was also of German descent. You know, we're talking, this This is all going on. I mean, he has her he, right as the, you know, as Hitler's taking power in Germany. Um, I'm actually surprised that there wasn't more of a backlash against him and his heritage, considering what we did to the Japanese in World War II. Uh, so that is a little surprising. Now, I do know that he is one in particular person, and it's not a, wa a wide swath against like a group of people. So I do understand that little difference. Um, but it was very surprising that they had a very favorable outlook towards him uh, instead of an unfavorable one, especially if he had what did time in the German military before he came there. Uh, that's very interesting to me. It is, and uh, I think that the fact that he had um, been in the States for so long that he could uh, speak English, uh, obviously, well, right. mitigated that sentiment. And, uh, the, the, you know, the, the internment of, of the Japanese uh, in, in the camps and all that, but the Japanese were, I think, to, to the United States more foreign than Europeans were. Okay, all right, I get that. And so, I, I, I mean, we were such a melting pot for Irish, for Germans, for... I mean, we had major cities in Texas, uh, Schulenburg, uh, Shiner. There were large German communities. And I think that... Um, <clears throat> The, the general population gave the, the German-Americans a, a much bigger pass than they did uh, on the Japanese-Americans. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. Um, well, so, so nonetheless, he, he, you know, he's seen favorably. And during the hearing, a couple of interesting things pop up here. I'm going to just kind of get him in brief. So he's charged with defiling a grave. But in his mind... In his mind, he truly believes that he is married to Elena in some weird way, that he owns the body, that she gave it to him, and also that he paid for everything. 
So there's, it's almost like a property rights issue when it goes to court, which is kind of interesting. Um, and in the middle is caught, you know, while this is going on, it's being stored by, uh, you know, the, the funeral home who they decide, I don't know how they were able to do this, but they put it on display and about 7,000 people came by to see this. <laughs> I know. How is that legal? <laughs> and where'd that money go? Um, I, my theory on this is that the funeral home, the sheriff didn't know what to do. The funeral home didn't know what to do. The family didn't know what to do. Uh, Von Kossel certainly didn't know what to do. And, uh, so they just did what they normally do when a dead person gets there. They put them out for a viewing. I, I guess so. So. Yeah. But that's what it, it, it was. They charged it was for bizarre. It, I mean, uh, not many people visit a funeral home three times, right? Yeah, and have two viewings. Mm-hmm. So, it. But Key West is a little quirky too. Yeah. And, I mean, they let out the schools so the kids could go see this, and it was um, just something that that intrigued everybody who lived here because they knew of, they either knew Von Kossel or they'd seen him or they knew about him or they'd heard of his wingless airplane or Mm -hmm. uh, he was somebody that that people were aware of and that added to the intrigue. Right. Well, no, it, it, that's a very interesting point. Um, I mean, so during the course of this hearing, you know, the, he's he's declared legally sane. There's a couple of doctors who perform an autopsy on the body. Uh, they don't reveal their findings at the time. Um, we also learn, uh, there's, there's also something else interesting I wanted to learn here, is that while he tells the story of the escape, um, you know, the, the crime of him stealing the body, in that, it comes out that there was actually a driver that was there, which isn't in his story, and we don't learn about it earlier in the book. Um, so who did, did they ever track down who this person was that was helping him drive the body out? Uh, no, and he didn't show up until two days later hmm. uh, to take her from the sort of halfway house. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Got it, got That it. he had uh, rented. And so... I'm sure he talked. Uh, as I said, it's a small town. There are no secrets. Right. Eventually, everybody finds out about everything. And uh, but he he was a bit complicit in this. But I'm sure Von Kossel paid him. Yeah, just like he paid and, the undertaker uh, to rebed the body. You know, he's exactly laying money around town. Well, he was getting a pension from somewhere. Uh, in addition to what he was earning at the Marine Hospital. And uh, there's been all kinds of speculation as to where that money came from. But my best guess is that um, it was a pension from the, his service in the, the German Navy mm-hmm. that makes sense. during World War One, And because uh, the Germans are known to be uh, amazingly efficient. And even after World War Two, the mail was still arriving... <laughs> daily so I, I have a feeling that's where that pension came from I think you might be right yeah because he always seemed to have money I mean he wasn't spending it on anyone because he had you know kind of left his wife and daughter to fend for themselves 
well, so now, now let's so let's let's close up this story a little bit. So he's the actual outcome of the trial is that the statute of limitations ran out. He wasn't charged. Um, the the doctors who made the autopsy they didn't speak out. He's kind of let go. Um, and the outcome is that they rebury Elena, but there's like a like a, tr- a triumvirate of people, and only they know where the body is buried. And I think to this day, no one knows where it is. And they basically cut up the body and buried it, uh, and it's still like in an undisclosed location. Correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, they all took it to uh, their grave. They did, and uh, there were three people: uh, Bienvenido Perez, uh, who was the the uh, chief of police, and uh, Otto Bethel, who was the cemetery sexton, and Benny Sawyer. And uh, the three of them were charged with uh, what to do with Elena. And the description that uh, was provided by Bienvenido Perez is is graphic. It's, uh, I'm sure it was very chilling i'm sure it was a very difficult thing for them to do mm-hmm. to dismember her sort of the humpty dumpty effect uh, right. they couldn't put her back together again and to put her in this small box and then bury her and i'm sure she's i'm not sure but i'm almost positive that she's buried at some place in the in the key west cemetery uh, but uh, it must have been a, a very chilling evening. Mm-hmm. I can, yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, it's it's very strange, and they, and they kept their secret. Uh, she's still undisclosed, and I mean, her family all died of tuberculosis, so it's another sad end for Elena. Um, and von Kassel, so he he after all this stuff goes on, he decides to leave and go to Zephyr Hills. Um, but he has one last statement for the town of Key West, and he basically blows up the mausoleum um, as he's leaving town, um, That the, the mausoleum that he built. Uh, he blows it up as he leaves town, and, you know, that's kind of his last statement on the city. Goes up to Zephyr Hills, um, writes his memoirs, lives with his sister, and uh, changes his name in 1950 officially to Carl Tanzler von Kossel, and then dies in 1952. Um, and I believe while he was still in Zephyr Hills, he was still using those death masks that you mentioned earlier to create new versions of Elena, for, correct, to, to have around the house? <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the mausoleum, they were contemplating, and they could have charged him with anything, with several different offenses. Uh, they just chose not to. But what the charge they were initially considering was the wanton and willful destruction of a tomb. Mm-hmm. And so in his farewell uh, bomb, that was sort of his way of, of you know, pointing his middle finger at, at Key West sure. by saying, you want to see the wanton and willful destruction of a tomb, I'll show you what show you what it is and uh the authorities i'm convinced knew that it was he that had done that uh, because if, if vandals had done it they would have been found out sure and they just decided look <laughs> let's just let this go right right 
Yeah. I mean, and that, it's kind of funny because, like, he got away with a lot of stuff. There was a lot of that sentiment of, like, ah, we'll just let this go, let this go. Um, I mean, he was, it just, he got a pass so many times that I'm just blown away with how many times he was just able to kind of get away with stuff, you know? And maybe it's his large personality, his interesting, I don't know. He's just one of those guys, I guess. Well, I, um, there's a, a theater teacher at the Key West High School at, annually invites me to give a lecture on the book and tell about the story and one of the questions was um, do you think he could get away with that today and quite frankly I don't think so at all oh not even no definitely not and one of the reasons is that Key West has always been a bit autonomous Mm -hmm. well that's actually an understatement. Uh, the old-timers still talk about saying they have to go to Florida for the weekend. It's always considered itself just, you know, it, not really um, a part of, of the state of Florida or the United States even, that we sort of make up our own rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, I spent some time in Key West while I was in high school, and it became for a very long period of time my favorite place in the United States. I love Key West. I had a lot of fun there. I thought it was amazing. I've been to Key Isla Mirada. Uh, I think it's I think it's a cool part of the country, um, a very interesting part. Um, so I'm a big fan of of that section of the world. So now. As we're running out of time here, I do. I'm gonna. Le- I'm gonna tease the book a little bit because there's an epilogue to this that is really interesting. Um, something that I refuse, only because of time, um, to go into. You got to read the book, read the epilogue, and it's the findings, um, 20, 30 years after the fact, uh, that the two doctors who performed the autopsies, what they found. Um, very, very crazy, interesting stuff. So, uh, talking about the book, Undying Love, it's available on Amazon, Kindle, you can get a hard copy. Uh, where, can, where, where else can people find you? You know, I just finished, and we're in the process of getting it up. I did an audio book. Uh, oh, I read this. As you continue and, your obsession. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> My wife book. looks at me funny sometimes. <laughs> right. She knows where she's going to end up, right? Hey, oh. <laughs> Where can people find the audiobook? I would guess that the audiobook will be up within two weeks. Oh, great. And um, then uh, you can buy copies of it from uh, Amazon. or uh, uh, And also, it's uh, available as uh, an e-book, mm-hmm. which uh, is available through absolutely amazing e-books. So if you're a Kindle reader or... or um, iPad reader, then it's available there as well. But people, you know, I got, I, I cannot highly, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Um, it's we didn't even get into, we're just scratching the surface here. The the dots that are connected, the stories that unfold. This is an incredible book. You, you stumbled across um, a very morbid, uh, macabre story that is just grabs your attention, and you did a great job writing it. So. Uh, um, yeah, this. I thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a great book. Ben Harrison, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, I appreciate very much your asking me to be on the show. Absolutely. And I want to thank everyone for listening. 
Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode, or you can follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you all about upcoming guests, the current guests, and upcoming projects, episodes, and everything like that. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. You can also check out all of my other unrelated and some related projects on danieljglenn.com. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission.